be here this morning, man. I am, uh, I am pumped. Uh, feel the Spirit moving this morning, amen? amen? Worship, baptism, man, this is happening, and uh, it's a day that the Lord has made, so this is, uh, this is cool. And, I, and I'm going to jump into the Word this morning. If you guys don't know who I am, my name is Ryan Graydon. Uh, I'm a member here at the church, and, uh, and it's good to see a full church, kind of as Ryan said. It's just great to see people here. Uh, this morning. And this morning we're going to be in uh, Luke. You can turn your Bibles or your apps or uh, whatever you have to follow along. Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 63 um, this morning. But after that, I'm going to, I'm going to, my desire this morning is to let God's word speak as it should. And so we're going to be jumping around. That's going to be our main passage this morning, but I'm going to have slides. I'm not typically a slide guy, but I'm going to have slides with all the other passages just so you guys can keep up. So um, don't feel Uh, like you're behind, uh, no shame um, if you can't keep up as we continue on, but uh, we're going to really get into the Word today, and it's a good thing. Um, And and, uh, I'm going to try to keep it within my time, okay? Uh, I like to be right around 30 to 35 minutes, but when you're excited about what God is saying, we're just going to let it happen. So if it goes an hour, that's the way it goes. No, I'm not going to, we're not going to. So... but this morning, uh, we're continuing on in this, in this uh, series of, as we prepare for Easter. And, and as we enter into this time of study this morning, discovering God's Word, I want to ask you guys for a couple of things this morning, all right? First off, I want you to be there, okay? To be there. And what I mean by that is, is I want you to think about what we're reading. Uh, we're we're going to read an account. And I'm going to use that word account, not story, okay? We're going to read an account this morning that really happened. Just as you might read a reliable newspaper making accounts of what's happened in the local town in the last few weeks, This account of Jesus' accusation and crucifixion actually happened. Actually happened, guys. And I fear, church, that when we read these words too often, we treat it as a good story. It's not for our entertainment. It's written so that we can be changed by it, so we can be affected by it, so that we know for a fact our, de- our eternity depends on the knowledge of what happened here, why it happened, and the response that we should have because of it. So as we read this passage this morning, I plead, you guys, I plead that we set aside distractions and be present here in this gathering as, you, as if you were witnessing all this happen with your own eyes, okay? That's, that's what I mean by be there. Luke wrote this account, not story, account, for a purpose. And if you think about it, this account has been passed on for thousands of years. And now this morning, it sits in our lap. Not a story, a true happening, an account. And the second thing I ask this morning is that you glean from this account. You see the word glean, if you look it up, it means to extract or gather for keeping in use. 
to extract or gather for keeping and use. Too often I fear that, again, we read this book as it's like an assignment. We've got to do this. This story, it's near the holiday. We've got to read this story. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And then we go on with our day. And as I mentioned earlier, this, this, this account is not here for our entertainment. It's not a, it's not a book of rules. This book is, is, yeah, not a book of rules for, for us or regulations to follow either. It's God's word. It's God's word. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us all Scripture... All Scripture is God-breathed, meaning it came from the lips of God. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the Son of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You guys, this is a real book. It's as if God came down today to our congregation. If he was standing on this stage and spoke to us, all of us would probably listen, wouldn't we? I think we would. So if this is God's word, then why don't we treat it with the same reverence and care? Why do we just read it as if we're supposed to? Or do we even read it through the week? So church, this morning, maybe for the first time in your life or my life or our lives, I want us to see this book as it truly is. It's God's conversation to us. It's pretty special. God's conversation to us, God's love letter to us. And I want to read this account in a different way than you ever had. So again, be there and glean from this this morning. Be there and glean from this this morning. Let's read Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 63 and go all the way to 2356. Luke 22:63. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, "Prophesy. Who was it that hit you?" And they were saying many blasphemous things to him. Are you seeing this? When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, if you're the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it with ourselves from his mouth. Then the whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, the king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. 
He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee where he started even to hear. When Pilate heard this, he asked if this man was Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And when Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, they mocked him, they dressed him in bright clothing and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the leaders and the people and said to them, you have brought me this man and as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those, you accuse, those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown in prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and released him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder but he handed Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon, the Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people following him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs who have never borne, the breasts who have never nursed. Then they will say, begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others, criminals, who were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And the people stood watching. And even the leaders were still scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself as this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. 
The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine. They said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourselves and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light had failed. The curtain curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God saying, this man, this man was really righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plea and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. You guys, Jesus dying on the cross was not an event that surprised God the Father. Did you know that? It was no surprise to him. And for that fact, it should not have been surprised to the people around him if they knew the scriptures that were written before Jesus' birth. But we see that the people around Jesus didn't understand why he was going to die. The people who loved him. They didn't want him to be crucified and rightfully so. He was a friend. He was a mentor. He was a teacher. He had made an impact on people and those around him. However, God gave us a Savior for one purpose, to die for us. That's the account, not the story, the account. Jesus' death, as I I mentioned previously, was destined, and and it was predicted so. And in some sense, you guys, it had to happen because of that prediction, The book of Isaiah was written almost 740 years prior to the birth of Christ. 
For over 700 years, the prophet Isaiah had accurately predicted the birth of the Savior as well as his necessary death. Isaiah 53 is considered one of the, one of the greatest profound predictions of the Savior of the Old Testament. And if you read through that chapter, you will see the obvious telling of a Savior, a Savior that predicts everything that Jesus must fulfill. And as you read through this chapter, we'll notice something. So here's where my slides come into play. If you guys would, go ahead and put up Isaiah 53. And if you want to follow along, that's great. But Isaiah 53, we're going to start in verse 1 through 5. It says this. Again, remember, this is 700 years before Jesus ever stepped foot on earth as an infant. Isaiah 53.1 says this. Who has believed and what, have, what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty. Sorry, this isn't here. I added this, but we're going to get to that. Sorry. Or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. And here's where we pick up on the slide. Yet, he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced. Because of our rebellion. Do you hear that? Crushed because of our iniquities. Punished for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. 700 years before the Luke account we just read. A little further later in that same chapter, verses 7 through 9, it says this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Does that sound familiar? Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter, and like a sheep, silent before his shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate for he was cut off from the land of the living. And he was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was, he was with a rich man at his death because he had not done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. 700 plus years before Jesus was birthed and it's a pretty accurate description of the crucifixion, if you ask me. And the people knew of this passage. The Jews knew this scripture. How did Isaiah know this? How could he have been so right? Because it was God's plan. Isaiah was a prophet of the one true God. And when God spoke to Isaiah and told him to write this down, he did it. God knew what he was doing, and he was sure to make it happen. This story is God's, not man's, from beginning to end. So why would this surprise us? 
If God is in control, then why should we know? Why don't we know that the things he says will happen will happen? Why don't we take that literally? But that's not the only time that Jesus predicted his death. Jesus himself, through his ministry, begins to tell his disciples and the people around him that he will die in the book of Luke. In passages we've read already and studied, the account of Jesus' life, he states it more than once. Again, in Luke 9, chapter, uh, verses 21 through 22, uh, he says this, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell no one. He's talking to his disciples saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. A little later in verses 43 and 44, it says this, and they were all astonished at the greatness of God, but while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to betrayed, be betrayed into the hands of men. And then in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34, he mentions it again. It says, then he took the 12 and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He, he even references his, the things in the past. For he will be handed over to Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And even in the book of John, John chapter 14, we read another account in verses 27 through 29. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it is happens, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Jesus knew his purpose on earth, church, and, the, and his purpose was to seek the hearts of men and to die for their sins by being nailed to a cross, not for anything he did wrong, but for everything we did wrong. Everything we did wrong. Why would Jesus do this? Our, our earthly responses is what man in his right mind, if innocent, would die for the sake of other people. That's the right question to ask. Now we're getting somewhere. And if you are asking that question like I've asked that question, in a strange way, we are beginning to understand what Jesus was here to accomplish. To know that this man came into existence knowing that he would die seems odd to us. I'm not sure, but I don't think there are many people on this earth that would dedicate their entire life to the knowledge that they would die a death they didn't deserve. Most innocent people out there would say, if accused, I didn't do it, and I don't deserve this punishment. If you're guilty, you're guilty. 
But if you're innocent, you probably have a desire to prove your innocence, especially when death is on the line. But not Jesus. He knew what was prophesied about him. He knew what he had told people must happen, and Jesus was committed to seeing it through. Why? We're going to get to that shortly. You see, the reason for Jesus' death on the cross? Sin. Not his, but sin. You see, sin came into existence many years prior to Jesus. And, then we, and if we look in the book of Genesis, we will see exactly what happened. We'll see the first sin, or somebody know it as, some people know it as the original sin. And it happened when Eve, then Adam, chose to disobey God's rules. Not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, simple but then Satan deceived them. And even in that opportunity of deceit, Adam and Eve still had a choice to make and they still knew what was right, but they chose to do what was wrong. And we to this day still experience that. We often know what's right to do, what God would expect us to do, but sometimes we defiantly choose to do what is wrong. And now, for generations upon generations, sin has ruined mankind. But, even in the original account, so many years before, God had a plan. God knew that sin was going to do this to mankind. And he was not surprised by Adam's and, Adam and Eve's choice and he knew that Satan was going to successfully tempt them, that they would fail and that sin would begin its ugly quest in our world and it would put distance between God and his creation, especially the people in his creation. And in this account, again, account, we see the serpent do his work, the sin enter, and then we see God search for Adam and Eve, and once he find them, finds them, he makes a judgment, a just judgment in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. So that God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. More than any livestock and more than any other wild animal, you will move on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Did you hear that? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There is a definite switch here in this narration. It moves from talking about mankind and in general, any... Uh, no specific man to talking about a specific man in the future. He. Most theologians agree that this was one of the first foretellings of Jesus and the crucifixion, and it was in Genesis, y'all. The beginning of God's story. He knew what he was doing. God knew sin would grow and grow, and the only thing to conquer sin would be the death 
of Jesus. He will strike your head. Sin is a permanent fixture of our world. We look around and we see it everywhere. It's inescapable. This is a sinful creation. Despite the beauty we see on sunny days, it is a sinful creation. But in order that mankind might even have a chance to enter the kingdom of heaven and live in worshipful community with God, there needed to be atonement for sin. Prior to the birth of Christ, God's rule for people was that they had to make an atonement for their sin, their wrongdoings. And every time they sinned, they had to bring a perfect animal without blemish to the temple. It was God's way at that time for the forgiveness of sins. You see, they had to sacrifice innocent animals to atone for the wrongdoings of people. It sounds pretty unfair, doesn't it? If you truly think about it, this animal hasn't done anything wrong. It's just lived its life and then it's taken, not because of something it did, and its life and its blood had to be spilled for the wrongdoings of the person who presented it. And when God set that for his people to do, I think he was trying to teach them a lesson. And I wonder if people back then had a better understanding of their penalty of sin. They had to watch this happen. They had to carry the weight or the guilt that this sacrifice and death of this animal didn't have to happen. But because they made a choice to sin, it now had to happen. That was God's rule. God knew the sins of this world were its great. And God knew that this method wasn't the best And so he chose to have a sacrifice so great that it would cover the sins of the past and the future human race if we just believed in it. And Jesus was that sacrifice. Mm. Greater than any animal, God's very own son. The greatest sacrifice that could have been given, a perfect person, totally innocent, uh, to atone for our sins. Again, it should make you think about the choices and what you're doing every moment of the day. Jesus had to pay our penalty. But I want us to notice something very quick in Luke chapter 22. And I changed this a bit. 22, 39 through 45, we're going to read. 22. 39 through 45. I want you to notice something. It says, He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives with the disciples following him. And when he reached a place where he had told them, he said, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Listen. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. 
Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. I want you to notice in that passage just how human Jesus was. He was real. God sent his son humble and poor, just like Isaiah read, wrote. And he was a human, and he had to pay the penalty for this. There was nothing that we could say that made this sacrifice something that people could reason out of. It had to happen. And Jesus knew that. But he was a human, and he felt feelings like we did. He knew what was coming. He knew what he was there for. And even though he didn't desire the pain and anguish of the whole event that was going to happen, he knew he had to do it. Not my will, but yours be done. The human side of him knew what he was going to feel and endure. I don't think anybody in this room would want to be scourged till your flesh is torn so much that your bones might be showing. Or desire a crown of thorns shoved into your scalp. And then on top of that, to be beaten, kicked, spit on, verbally mocked, and more. Knowing that he was totally innocent. But knowing he was willingly deserving it. Jesus knew his death had a purpose. His death had to happen. He was a perfect sacrifice for a world of sinful people. And he knew that his death was part of the plan, that that was why he was sent here. It was what he was supposed to do. Jesus had to die. Why? For you and I, sitting here today, to have a chance at eternity. Without him, you and I would certainly be bound for hell. And that's the truth, church. Romans 5 Verses 6 through 10 says this. For while we were still helpless at the right time, did you hear that? At the right time, God's plan. Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life, church, do we know of anybody else in our lives that would give you this much? 
Do we know of anybody who would willingly endure a scene like I just described to you? All that Jesus did, would anybody else do that for you? Yet he did that for us. And why? He loved us. He loves us presently. Because he cares for you and you and you and you. Because of his death and resurrection, we can be seen as righteous or worthy of eternity with God despite our sinful nature. Romans 5, and I added, took away a little 18 through 21. Sorry, says this. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. That's our sin, y'all. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. That is the death of Jesus. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one's man, one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law shows us how sinful we are. That's why it's there, to make us realize that we are not perfect and we are not as good as we think we are. But the grace that God showed us as the result of the death of his one and only son to settle that debt, the sin debt we all accrue. Let me read you the response, Romans 10, 9 through 13. Here's the response that we should have in thankfulness. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with their heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone... Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew or Greek because of the same Lord of all richly, same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You guys, the gospel is simple. It's a simple message. This account of Jesus on the cross, dying a death he didn't deserve, this story is ours. He died for you, and he died for me, and he died for all of us because he knew how ugly sin is, and he knew what sin can do. And he knew God's great plan, and he knew what he was here to do, and Jesus did it willingly. Lee, why? So you and I would have our own account or story. A real life 
account of how Jesus transformed our lives. How we were sinners and we were deserving of an eternity separated from God, but Jesus, God didn't want that, so he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty, not us. And if we believe in him, the gospel is simple. We will be saved. Church, I hope and I desire, I hope and, and I, my desire is that I hope we make this story our true account. And we realize how real it is. May we not walk out the doors today or spend the rest of our life thinking what a great story. It's true. Let's pray. Father, your word, your conversation to us is so valuable. And I pray, God, that we would look at this book different, that we would charge into its words and hear you. God, that it wouldn't sit and collect on shelves with dust, that we don't just pull it out on Sunday mornings. But through your word, God, would we see Jesus. Jesus from beginning to end, Father, Jesus is the account of your holy word. And Father, I pray that we realize just what he did for us. That he really came to earth, that he lived a sinful life and that he died a death he didn't deserve. And why? Because he loved us. It's a love we have a hard time understanding, Father. And I pray that through seeking your word, you would begin to reveal that to us an understanding of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you guys stand and sing this last song with us?